Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. This for the week of December 7th through 13th, 2020. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host John Deville. This week we will bring you updates on a Long March 11 launch, an excellent article on suppliers of the C919 aircraft and China's aerospace industrial chain more generally, an announcement from China's National Radio and Television Administration. But first, John is going to provide an update on one of China's leading commercial rocket companies, iSpace. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. John, would you like to give us a little bit more information on some developments with the Hyperbola 2 rocket from iSpace? Sure. So iSpace, the the Chinese launch company uh, that's building the Hyperbola 2, published a number of articles this week on the progress that they're making on on the Hyperbola 2. So the Hyperbola 2 being their um, medium lift reusable methalox liquid fueled um, launch vehicle. And so the first piece they published is on how they completed the first uh, batch, the, the first manufacturing of their fuel tanks. And it's worth noting that the fuel tank of the、um, Hyperbola 2 will be a common bulkhead fuel tank. So what that means basically is that you have the fuel,、uh, you have the propellant, and you have the oxidizer that share、um, the same wall. And the point of that is really to make the whole fuel tanks more compact, and this reduces weight. On the other hand, there's always a trade-off, which is that this increases complexity, and there can be issues regarding the thermal insulation between the two,、um, well, the two liquids. Uh, typically, when you have、um, large differences in temperature, but that's not the case for liquid methane and liquid oxygen, which is、um, well the fuel fuels that are used that, by the、um, Hyperbola Two. So that's the first point. They also added that、um, this was the first common bulkhead fuel tank that was manufactured in China for rockets that were above three meters of diameter. And when you indeed you look at the other rockets that are、um, at least three meters in diameter, it's typically Long March Three, Five, Six, Seven. You realize that they have more traditional fuel tanks, so separated,、uh, separate fuel tanks, and not common bulkheads.、Um, so that's the first point on iSpace. They also published another article on the progress that they're making with the、um, with the supersonic、um, wind tunnel testing of their first stage, and notably for the、um, re- reentry part and the vertical. Landing, and this is a very critical part because during the ascent phase, basically、um, the airflow, the leading edge of your rocket is the the rocket fairing. It's the、um, it's it's cone shaped. It's pretty. It's it's a smooth, optimized aerodynamic shape. But when you're landing, however, the landing the the leading part of your rocket is the nozzles of your rocket engines, and that's that's complex geometry. So a lot of、um, very complex aerodynamics、um, going on there, and、um, And you know you're also going through all these fluid dynamic regimes from highly supersonic all the way to subsonic when you're landing. So there's a lot of testing to be done. And、um, so iSpace they've been doing some some wind tunnel tests and, sh- and they published、um, some Schlieren photography、uh, where you can see basically that、um, I mean they're they're testing the first stage in, in the wind tunnels. You see that they're playing around with、um, with the grid fins. You can see that we're on a hypersonic、uh, supersonic regime. You can see these. Um, shock waves and things look fairly stable, so I think we're they're making good progress on on that front as well. So,、um, so yeah, I mean, Blaine, there's I think there's really the question of next year who will be the first 
medium lift, commercial medium lift rocket to, to lift off? Uh, will it be um, land space? Will it be ice space? I think um, both are making good progress. And, um, and so the bets are off. <laughs> that is indeed the, well, I'm taking bets if anybody wants to uh, know. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know if that's serious or not. If you'd like to inquire, we can have further discussions. But digressing, um, I think it's definitely, it's an interesting uh, video that you just showed of the, the grid fins. And it's, it's, it's good to see the, uh, the stability. That's, um, that's, that's a really interesting thing to have published online. And, and it goes back to, I think, what we mentioned last week about Chinese space companies getting better at producing cool content of what they're doing and uh, spreading it online because that's um, that's pretty pretty interesting. There's another good article that had been published um, in January of this year by by iSpace that gives a bit more information on the common bulkhead in in the Hyperbola two, and it talks to I think one of the engineers who had designed the um, that part of the rocket. So it's it's definitely we'll have that in the show notes, but um, highly recommended to check that out. Uh, anything else, John, from your side on uh, on the Hyperbola 2? I don't have anything else to add here because I think you covered it well, but uh, any final thoughts? Um, nope, all good for me. Okay, so just moving on to the next point, we have a, a launch of a Long March 11 with uh, two satellites from the Chinese Academy of Sciences that occurred earlier this week. Uh, noteworthily, this was the 11th uh, launch of the Long March 11, and for those of uh, our viewers who are more familiar with kind of more general pop culture aspects of China. 11-11 is the uh, the Singles Day, which is, as it would turn out, kind of the equivalent of Black Friday in the U.S. in the sense that it is the biggest online shopping day. So the 11th launch of the Long March 11, um, and the third launch in 2020. Um, and the launch received a fair a little bit less coverage as it may otherwise have because the Chang'e 5 uh, media firestorm that has occurred over the last couple of weeks. It's been uh, pretty incredible. And, and again, a lot of interesting content. Uh, being posted from from Chang'e 5. But uh, this Long March 11 launch, it uh, it was on the 9th of this month, and it put two uh, small satellites for the it's the, the GCAM mission. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but G-E-C-A-M. So the Gravitational Wave High Energy Electromagnetic Counterpart All-Sky Monitor. So it is a um, a, a monitoring satellite uh, from the, the CAS Institute of High Energy Physics in Beijing. Uh, and the two satellites are designated as KX08A and B, and um, they have a number of different instruments to detect uh, gamma and X-wave bursts in the universe. So uh, I think it's just sort of the latest of these pretty significant uh, scientific uh, projects that are being undertaken by China. Um, and I, I guess um, a, a point that I would uh, mention, I, I guess every year with, with EuroConsult, I do a, a sort of estimate of the Chinese space budget, and, and we're always pretty impressed at the amount of money that is devoted to just sort of science and uh, space science projects. So we, we sort of segment it by different verticals and the sort of launch and and um, communications, this kind of thing. And space science is always a, a big part of it. And um, I think increasingly it's also being used as a way of fostering international cooperation. And, and I think, again, China doing more complex, more expensive, um, sort of bigger ticket projects, it has definitely been an enabler of that. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting launch that got less coverage than it may otherwise have in a, in a news uh, cycle that had less big events going on. Uh, Jean, anything from you on the Long March 11? I, I would definitely agree with you that um, space sciences is is a great way for the Chinese to foster international cooperation. And a um, few missions that come to mind typically is well, uh, setting aside exploration because there are some, there's also some in, in, um, international cooperation on the Chang'e missions. I'm thinking, for example, of the SMILE mission, uh, S-M-I-L-E, um, which is um, a cooperation between China and, and ESA on um, solar um, solar winds um, that's that's bound to be launched, I think, in 2022 or 2023. 
Um, so, so yeah, good stuff going on um, in, in space sciences between China and its partners. Um, maybe moving on to, to our next point, and it's a way to put a little bit more aviation in the um, weekly updates. Um, the CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, a think tank based in DC, they published a great piece um, this week on um, the commercial aviation sector in China, and more specifically, they were they I mean they discussed a lot COMAC and its um, in performances both from an industrial and technical point of view. And the main takeaways from this piece was that um, while China has been doing really admirably well in transitioning into a high tech superpower in a number of sectors, commercial aerospace is not one of them. And the, the piece points at a lot of issues that the industry has in China that currently and typically there's the um, poor performance of the current um, COMAC aircraft. There's the delays that both COMAC um, programs have encountered. There's the troubles they have with certification. There's the over-reliance on for foreign suppliers. And there's also the poor industrial productivity in the sense of the numbers of aircraft that COMAC is able to produce um, every month. So. Overall, I think it's a, it's a really good piece with great data and a lot of good points. Uh, maybe one or two drawbacks that I would like to point out. Um, I feel that, um, well, I, I think that the article sometimes has an overly negative and pessimistic uh, approach to the Chinese commercial um, a, um, aviation sector. That's the first point. And I, overall, my thoughts is for sure, I think that China has... China's core strengths are its capacity, its ability to enter an industry, initially maybe subcontracting, building low, medium quality products, but the ability to climb up after a period of time, the value chain to produce top quality products. And we've seen them do this in some industries. I'm thinking of typically um, smartphones, high-speed rail, and I think this is also something they're doing in the automobile industry currently. But I think the main issue they have in the commercial aviation industry is that things don't work this way in the in this industry. You cannot, this um, build, learn, rinse, repeat cycle, this cannot work in the aviation industry or to a lesser extent because you, you have 200 lives in, a, in, a, you know, in an aircraft and you have certification authorities that are there to make sure that you get it right, this, not the second time, not the third time, but the very first time. And so, you know, this learning process is a little bit hampered. And, and I think just last point I wanted to add is that, um, the, the paper stresses a lot on how COMAC is not a Chinese aircraft because um, it relies maybe over 80% on foreign um, suppliers, which is which is definitely true. That I mean, it's really good data, but I, I, I don't see the, the point of on stressing on the fact that it's not a Chinese aircraft because I did a similar exercise with the Airbus A320, and I'm sure if we do it with Embraer and um, and, you know, with Mitsubishi in Japan, you realize that I'm sure we'll find that over 50, 60, 70 percent of the parts are not Brazilian or, you know, or, or Japanese. So I think what this shows is that for sure China does not have an end to end capability, um, um, you know, end to end industry chain in the commercial aviation sector. But, you know, COMAX, it just shows that they're sourcing the best parts that they can find around the world. So this shows the industry is to a large extent commercial. And um, and I don't think it's really to their disadvantage the same way that I'm sure Apple or Huawei or Samsung sources, you know, the best parts you can find from from around the world. But I mean, apart from these two drawbacks, I, I think it's a it's a great piece and definitely our viewers should give it a read if you're interested in in Chinese commercial aviation. 
Yeah, really good summary. And I definitely agree that it's, um, it, it is a, a very good piece with a, a rather interesting perspective. And I, <clears throat> I would just add that um, I, I would really add, add two things. So I think um, to the extent that the, the, <clears throat> the assertion that the C919 is predominantly made with imported parts, um, I suppose one of the reasons that the author, that the, that the author would, would make that point multiple times would be that it is basically his argument is that the tariffs are a bad idea because China is a big market for Boeing and the fact that it, you know, and that, and that you know, so if he then says, oh, well, and, and um, well, and I guess the reason it's a big market for Boeing is because, you know, as he says, 80% of the parts of, of a C919 are made with imported uh, by, you know, are imported parts. So um to the extent that he needs to kind of harp on that point, I, I think it's just because it, it, it is kind of the core of his argument, which is that these tariffs are a bad idea. We should be letting Chinese companies buy American products if they want to. And it's a good business for Boeing. And it's a good business for much smaller companies that are doing much more niche things like, you know, there's I, I'm sure I, I don't know, but I would imagine there'd be dozens or hundreds of companies that are that are active in the supply chain selling into China. And so I think. You know, it, it's basically him saying there's a lot, big market over there and we should let them buy what they want, uh, which is, you know, uh, but yes, I agree that he probably harps on that more than he needed to. Um, but I do also think that there's a um, in the U.S. today, it's a very like very, very polarized environment where the two parties agree on very few things. And China bashing is sort of one of the things that they agree upon. And to the extent that he did do you know some degree of china bashing i think it was relatively measured in the context of like the overall like like i've read much much more hawkish documents coming out of washington dc i suppose is what i would say um so yeah overall a good piece but yes i agree uh with the the sort of imperfections that, that you mentioned but um oh and also i would add there's a, a pretty good video that is linked near the top of the piece it's a, like a four or five minute video where it it kind of goes over some of the same points that they talk about in the article, but there's some good visualizations and there's a couple of, of short interviews and this kind of thing. So it's it's not bad, you know. Um, okay, anything else on the uh, on the C919 from your side, John? All good. Okay, so our last, uh, last news update of the week. So we have an announcement uh, from the National Radio and Television Administration of China, and it's talking about a plan to modernize the country's broadcast sector and... Uh, to give a little bit of context, well, I guess the the plan has several key phrases. So namely things like smart business and ultra HD 4K and satellite internet uh, converged two-way services, uh, which is uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, satellite internet converged two-way services. Um, and, and a little bit of context, the Chinese broadcast industry to now is um, rather less modernized than the rest of the world for a couple of reasons. So the first one is that um, media is rather tightly controlled in China in terms of the the granting of, of like television broadcast licenses, for example. It's not a particularly straightforward process, I, I as far as I know. Um, and it is also so so there's there's sort of less commercial companies that are broadcasters. Like for example, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine the largest commercial broadcast company in China is a company called Star Times which is a massive African, it's a direct to home broadcast company that targets the African, you know, many African countries. They have like 30 million African subscribers, but it's a Chinese company headquartered in Beijing. It's all run by, by Chinese management. Like it is 100% Chinese company um, and they're a broadcast company. But anyway, digressing, um, the, the broadcast uh, industry in China today, as we've mentioned on, on previous episodes as well, is, is mostly provincial TV stations and every province or territory has 
their own TV station. Some of them are quite large and quite popular. Some of them are, are much less large and much less popular, but all of them do enjoy some degree of government subsidy and, and a relatively limited degree of competition. And so you have a, a relatively not up-to-date broadcast sector. I mean, m most homes in China, though, that being said, I mean, they would be getting high-definition broadcast right now to a big screen TV, uh, possibly ultra-high definition. But but nonetheless, um, there's, there's not a huge amount of... Um, let's say modernization in, in the infrastructure. And so this announcement from the, the NRTA, um, basically they, they discuss the convergence of TV and internet access and this sort of um, idea that there's going to be this cloud platform built for satellite broadcasting. And they interestingly use the phrase satellite internet as was used by the National Development and Reform Commission earlier this year as a, a new infrastructure that China wants to develop. So it sounds like at a very high level, what the NRTA is trying to do is um, kind of merge broadcast with internet to the extent that you know broadcast is essentially data being sent over um, over whatever means media uh, you know whatever means you, the data is being delivered and um, yeah I think it's sort of the digitization and dataization of of, of broadcast. Um, I think the timing is interesting to the extent that it's announced a couple of weeks after ChinaSatcom had ordered those five new satellites, which we mentioned on a couple of weeks ago uh, news episode. And two of those satellites are specifically broadcast satellites. And this article mentions bringing in KA band uh, to, for some of these sort of two-way services. And so it sounds like you're going to start to see more kind of like hybrid um potentially kind of like a hybrid, like satellite broadband or kind of TV delivery via satellite um, in a more kind of megabits per second kind of way, as opposed to megahertz. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like this is all kind of being encouraged with this announcement. Um, and again, the timing being being somewhat interesting. Um, anything from your side, Sean, on the, on the NRTA? Mm, not really. I think it, you covered it really well and it's, it's, it's a really good point. I, just wanted to add that it's it's interesting how the, the important role that these provincial TV TV um, companies have um, in in various provinces in China. I think some of them are more dominant than others. I think like Hunan TV and and maybe is it Jiangsu or have have some that have some um, programs that have a, a national echo. So it's not just watched by the inhabitants of a given province. Um, and um, and so yeah, found that. Quite, quite unusual and interesting and very China-specific. China oh, yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting article earlier this year uh, in The Economist on Hunan TV, and they're, apparently they they have a, a new... They have a new show on Hunan TV this year that's, like, sort of a little bit risque. And what was the... Yeah, Sisters Who Make Waves, involving 30 female celebrities over the age of 30 competing for a five-member... for spots in a five-member band... So yeah, they're getting into some pretty pretty bizarre stuff over at Hunan TV, and they've got a few hundred million viewers. So it's one of the more successful ones for sure. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes, the the Hunan Television uh, article. And I think there is also some some change in the um, in the landscape currently um, in China. You have OTTs that are playing a growing importance in producing content. And I'm thinking of was it you know last year there was a program that in the end was was censored, but that was wildly popular called Yanshi Palace, I think. And that was uh, produced by Aichi, I would think, not 100% sure, but that was really one of the top programs in China that year. 
And um, so, yeah, you have OTTs that are not just, you have, you know, Aichi, Baidu Video, you have, you have a lot of platforms that increasingly are not just, um, you know, platforms where you can watch programs, but they're actually producing the programs themselves, um, similar to what you have in, in, in you know, in, in the U.S. typically, but digressing. Mm. For sure. Well, and, and I think also just just one last point on that. I mean, this idea also of um, you, worldwide, you have younger people, and, and you know whatever definition you want to use for younger, uh, watching less linear TV and more on their on their devices and more on uh, these kind of IGE or like Billy Billy type of platforms. And I think in China that's been even even more so. So I mean, if, I think a lot of these um, these provincial TV stations, I mean, it's it's probably a good thing for them that China is a rather old society, I suppose, because I don't think very many young people are, are going to be watching uh, the provincial TV stations for a whole lot longer. And I do think mm. there will be a whole lot of old people hanging around China for quite a long time. So maybe they'll be okay. They being the, the TV stations and also the old people. Yeah. Anyway, really digressing. Um, so uh, a couple of, of final housekeeping points, I guess. Um, I forgot at the very beginning to shout out to our good friends at the Go Taikonauts and also at spacewatch.global. They are two excellent sources for space news, not just on China, but in some cases worldwide. Um, also a shout out to our fans. We now have 100 subscribers on, well, 108, do we say? 100 and, uh, That's right. 105? No, my, my, no, it's 108, Eight. isn't it? Yeah, so thank you very much. Where it's uh, it will be interesting to see how many people are, um, well, you know, how many people want to join the conversation. We're always happy to receive comments or feedback, and we're always happy to discuss if if there's points that uh, that people would like to hear discussed. We're always happy to get ideas. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. It's it's cool. Big thanks, yeah, to our viewers, and and so 108. That's more than a 10 percent jump um, in 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 you know in just uh, one week, and so it just shows that we're even though that's ridiculously small compared to other channels, it shows that we're bringing some value through our content and that is something that we hope to continue doing um, in 2021. And so thanks for watching. And importantly, it's ridiculously large also compared to other channels. There's, you know, there's some that have you know, two or four or six subscribers. So we, we're, we're doing okay with, with that as well. And eight, <laughs> and eight is a good number in, in, uh, in China. So that's to end the week on an eight is always a good thing. Um, yeah. So that being said, I think that's everything for the week of December 7th through 13th. Uh, we look forward to, uh, we look forward to being with you next week. I will be with you from the United States and John, you will still be in, uh, in Toulouse as far as, uh, as far as you know, unless you get a call from the Chinese consulate saying the border is open, you can, you can come on over. Exactly. You're still waiting for that call. Yeah. For some time now. Okay. Indeed. Well, 2021, let's hope. All right, well, this has been another uh, episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by Jean Deville, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you. Bye.